to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Um, today is going to be a special episode. Uh, we have Matt Baker with us uh, from TrailMix, um, and we're going to be talking uh, about uh, something that's really near and dear to my heart um, as an entrepreneur, and, and that is pivoting. Um, and so we're going to talk a lot about uh, the Love and Pies journey, which if you guys haven't played that already, like pick up that game and play it. I've been playing it and actually loving the game since before the pivot. Um, so it'll, it'll be super interesting to, to dwell into things, but um, pick up the game, check it out. They went from a match three to a merge game. But, uh, you know, as I've found in advising different studios, angel investing, everyone that I've talked to, all these different studios are all going through, you know, similar struggles of what happens when your metrics aren't quite where you want them to be and how do you analyze where to go, what the problems are in your game. So uh, super excited for today's episode. But before we delve into all that, Matt, um, I always like to start with, you know, how did you get into games? Like, like what's your journey? How did you end up at, at Trail Mix making games? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, first of all. Uh, glad to hear you're enjoying the game. So I've been in the industry for... Um, about 16 years now, I think, like rel relatively old timer. Um, and <laughs> interestingly enough, I've been pretty much on mobile games since the beginning, which makes me a kind of a special case. I go right the way back to <laughs> before the iPhone was released, which is a fact I used to inform my nephews about how old I really am. Um, <laughs> I think the only place you're missing is like digital chocolate, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So um, I guess, I, you know, from a very young age, I mean, this is a real cliche, right? But I decided from a young age that I wanted to be working video games. I didn't really know what a game designer was, but about 12 years old, I was like, whoever gets to decide how these things are made and what the ideas are. <laughs> um, so there was lots of games that I was playing at the time. I think, you know, I was really into strategy games when I was younger. I think the Bullfrog games especially were some of the games that sort of made me really want to work in games, like the Theme Hospital and Dungeon Keeper and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, there was a big tradition in my family as well, board gaming. So, you know, we were really into board games. I think the first level I ever designed is in the middle of my brother's um, Hero Quest manual, where you were supposed to try <laughs> to copy the page and draw your own level designs. But I just took a byro straight to the, the manual <laughs> for all time. Um, so yeah, I, um, I got a degree in um, artificial intelligence. Um, pretty much because I just thought it sounded cool. Um, <laughs> I thought it would help me get into video games as well. It was an interesting degree. It was kind of a mixture of um, sort of technical computer science aspects, programming, but also um, more sort of like school courses that were more sort of like about philosophy or, you know, what, it, what even is intelligence? You have to answer that question before you can design an artificial version, right? So there are lots of interesting sort of tangents that you could go on on this degree. Um, you know, psychology and stuff was one of the aspects I really enjoyed, which I think is, you know, coming a little bit handy for me. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I graduated and pretty much immediately um, I tried to get jobs in games, but the I actually got offered a job at EA um, as a QA tester, but I did the sort of like the maths on the, <laughs> the economics of it and just traveling to where this place was every day. Like I just couldn't afford it basically. So I had to <laughs> say no to that, unfortunately. Um, and then an older brother's 
my sorry, my friend's older brother um, got a record deal with Sony, and they said, "Hey, we know that you play guitar and stuff. Why don't you come on the road with us?" Um, so I, I was telling Tom a little bit about this earlier, but yeah, I was a roadie for a while, and so I was actually in a crossroads where I was like, "Do I can continue with my you know with games, or do I, do I go into music?" Um, and eventually I was on sort of a hiatus over Christmas and I got a phone call from a QA outsourcing company that I'd applied to. And they said, come in and do an interview. So I did. Um, and I was, you know, I went through the interview process, got the job and I decided to take that on basically. So I, I, I got into QA that way. So this was in 2005, I think. And then <laughs> my first day on, on the job, um, I remember somebody handed me a mobile phone. So remember, this is in 2005. So, you know, for most people, gaming on phones at the time was kind of snake was probably at the height of most people's minds when you think about that. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of like, what's the phone for? Where's the, you know, where's the PlayStation? Um, but actually looking back at it, it was kind of a lucky break because it, it, um, I started working on testing early J2ME sort of Java mm-hmm. phone games. And uh, it sort of gave me, gave me a footing in the sort of testing standards that you needed for phones at the time, which led me eventually to Glue Mobile in London. So this was 2006. Uh, and then I worked there for a few years. And then there was an internal promotion for a sort of a junior game designer. Um, and we all went for it and I got it. So that was kind of from that point onwards, I was doing game design things. But obviously, it was still game design on mobile as we know it today. It, was, it wasn't like that. It was kind of the world <laughs> back then. I don't know if you remember. That. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so basically, I, I've worked at various places, and I think, you know, I've worked in educational games for children. I've worked at a Toys to Life, like a toy company in America. Mm. Um, I worked at a social gambling company for a while, making slots and like casino games. Um, and then ultimately, I ended up at King. Um, for about five years, where I was a principal lead or, or like a lead game designer. Um, so I worked on Farm Heroes franchise for a number of years, and then I sort of started my own projects, which um, ultimately didn't really make it out of soft launch. Um, and then I joined mm. Trailmix. Cool. So yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Trailmix a little bit. Um, yeah, what what's happened since you've been there? Like, what have you guys been working on? What have you been doing? Yeah. So. Um, the founding team of Trailmix. So uh, Caro and Tristan are the founders. So they um, were two people that I met when I joined King. So Caro was actually my first boss. She was the executive producer of Farm Heroes at the time. Um, Tristan was the original lead designer of Farm Heroes, but he moved on to um, sort of start up a new, um, like new games process. That's what he was doing at the time. So I, I joined to sort of fill a vacancy in the design team on Farm Heroes pretty much when it was at its peak. You know, it was it was doing very, very well, even though it's not as well known as Candy Crush in, in its own right. <laughs> that is still a huge game, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I joined that team um, and through that process, I met a lot of the other founding employees of Trailmix. So a lot of the artists um, and, and developers. Um, and they, so at some point um, in probably 2017, I think it was, Cara and Tristan left King and they decided to start their own company. Um, and they sort of made some of their key hires. And, and like internally, I was thinking, you know, I'd love to work with them again one day, but 
I, you know, I felt like there was too much overlap between me and Tristan to really facilitate that too soon. And then we went to the pub one day <laughs> and I was saying to Tristan, um, people keep asking me when I'm going to join trail mix. Um, and he basically said, well, actually on that topic, like uh, we've been talking about it and we we're wondering if maybe there's a place for you here. Um, so we discussed it a little bit more. And basically what I really loved was their vision. Um, you know, their vision was kind of, they want to make snackable games. So all of the stuff that we'd learned at King, I suppose, like, you know, how to make addictive sort of like uh, casual games. They wanted mm -hmm. to sort of fuse that knowledge with uh, this desire to sort of put some more good back out into the universe effectively. Um, mm. but the, exactly how that would manifest wasn't entirely known yet but it was just that drive really it was that vision that, that sort of resonated with me um and sort of talking about the opportunity they they spent you know at the point that i joined i think they've been going for about a year and a half or so they've gone through a few core prototypes and they found this this prototype which was something that they were really excited about but they needed a meta and tristan basically didn't have time to think too much about what that meta layer would look like <laughs> and you know having knowing what i just come out of doing a king like my game that had been cancelled mm -hmm. um, i had some experience sort of um building up new metas around games basically um so they, they sort of said yeah why don't you join us um so eventually i did um and i joined and that was pretty much how we started we sort of divvied up the labor that way so so tristan was really owning everything to do with the core because it wasn't just a match three game it was like it was actually a merge match three hybrid so it was a new concept um so it was kind of an interesting yeah it was it was kind of like merge before merge was really like a thing i feel like um yeah possibly to a certain extent i think they like so they'd already identified merge as a, as a hot topic like they knew like you know um <laughs> match three is very much a red ocean you know it's probably the, <laughs> the oceans um so it's it was about as close to a blue ocean as, they, as they'd seen for a while in <laughs> uh, remotely casual puzzle space um so they, they knew that they wanted to do something with merge um and they arrived at this thing and it was the idea really the philosophy behind it was sort of combining some of those match three um, motivators and drivers and, and you know the theories around how you monetize on it and all that kind of stuff but applying it to this new mechanic so really the chat you know Chris, Tristan had his work cut out which was how do we make this thing work um, so there was you know there was a lot of time spent on that um, but there was this other side to the vision which was narrative and you know Tristan especially has always been very heavily narrative focused on the games that he makes mm -hmm. so like the, the clear thing for me coming in was how do we turn this into a sort of a you know how do we get inject narrative into this meta in a way that's going to work for us in the long term so that was kind of my focus going forward it's awesome cool so you guys have been working on this for a while so you know i, I feel like it, it was out in soft launch for a while and then the pivot happened so maybe talk about like what the game looked like before uh, the pivot. And I, I don't know if you can share how things were going, uh, like how far from where your target numbers were or anything like that. But like, you know, what led to you guys saying, Hey, I think we need to pivot to something else. Yeah. So it's, I mean, the, we're talking about like a singular pivot, the pivot that happened earlier this year. <laughs> 
uh, in my mind, the game the game has probably been pivoted several times, really. <laughs> um, I think, you know, people talk about like how long have we been working on that game? And really, like we've probably built about six games by this point, honestly. Um, you know, so again, my my role was trying to find a meta that worked and resonated and, and got the narrative across in the right way. Like that wasn't easy. And it, and, and we threw away lots of prototypes whilst the, the core work was going. I think in retrospect, probably a little bit too much innovation, um, which is something that we regret. But, you know, we're sort of, we're creatives and we're here to create, you know, and there's always that thing that you have to get past, which is like, I know better, I can do this better. And then you try things out and you're like, okay, now I see why this is the leading design trope. <laughs> because uh, it actually solves a bunch of problems like really elegantly. Um, I think everyone has to go through that at some point. Um, so yeah, we, we went through a few a few versions of the meta. It sort of started off a lot more. Um, it was much heavier on the narrative side. So it was probably more comparable to something like a choices or an episodes. Um, but we were really playing around with um, consequence of choice. We wanted narrative choices that the player had to make and we wanted that to matter somehow but obviously you know when you start talking about that to any narrative person um it starts worrying them because what you're actually really creating is <laughs> several different timelines of the you know possibilities within the stories so you have to find ways to so anyway there are complexities on that line which led us to sort of uh scrapping it basically and i should really mention that we you know i think one of our saving graces we were so um worried about proper world building and good characters and good writing that we one of the best decisions we made was we hired a, a proper writer like it wasn't just <laughs> me doing it on the side um and you know so her name's laura and she um she basically her background was more sort of like um screenplays and stuff like that and she was more you know writing novels she had worked on games before but it wasn't the mainstay of her experience so she came on and she started doing the sort of the world building and, and, you know, sort of deciding who the main characters were and what the narratives were going to be. Um, so after we sort of got rid of the, the choices like stuff, um, I s moved more to a, um, I was thinking, you know, about the, the core fantasy that we were giving the player. And that was, you know, the, the cafe theme came about really early on because, you know, we love that as a setting. Um, so we spent a lot of time trying to find a way to make that work. And the game sort of became more of a, like a time management kind of a, a game, but like a very light time management. It was focused more heavily on the characters, um, mm -hmm. like the customers coming in and you serving them, but that's how the narratives were coming about. And um, we tried doing that. I mean, ultimately it was a bit too light to be satisfying mm. um, as, a, as a real time management game. So that didn't really work either. And like one thing that kept coming through really clearly in, in the playtest that we were doing, and we were doing lots of sort of qualitative surveys, was that people wanted more control over how their cafe was expanding and, and being designed. Um, so, so when you were doing these tests, sorry to interrupt you, but like when you were doing these like, you know, play tests and stuff, was it mostly like internal or did you use like a playtest cloud or were you actually like fielding real people in, you know, soft launch in a few countries at this point? Um, at this stage, it was primarily uh, qualitative uh, feedback that we were getting. So we were doing what we call friends and family tests. Mm. So obviously we're part of a bigger network, which is one of the advantages of being in Supercell. We have this network around us of other companies. Um, so Space Ape in London are kind of like our cousins. 
So um, the amount of times we would rope them in and be like, hey, play our latest prototype and give us feedback to you. That was one, one avenue that we had. The other one definitely we used a lot of Playtest Club. Um, so we were putting lots of builds out to players and, and you know, sort of doing like multi-session tests, like the customized tests that you can do, um, making them play over several sessions once we had a bit more content and, and just seeing how people were evolving. So really it was still very much in those early stages of evaluating the user experience more than anything else. We weren't, we weren't even talking about retention yet, you know. Um, we we're just trying to find the thing that worked. And in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the meantime, the core work was ticking over because that went through a few iterations because there are lots of design considerations there. Um, so these things were sort of being done in tandem. Um, and then ultimately, um, I think I realized that, um, you know, with this feedback that was coming through very strongly about people wanting more design and customization over the cafe, people loving, love that setting. And they were like, I just want control over this. So eventually it made sense to me to sort of do, a, I guess, a more traditional sort of, I guess you call it a puzzle and decorate game, right? In the, in the taxonomy of games, that's one of the... Home, homescape style, yeah. Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, to a certain degree, um, again, my sort of designer's ego was like, oh, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, it does a bunch of things really elegantly and it, and it works. And um, to a certain extent, it's what the players expect. So... I think it's important to sort of pay attention to that, right? And I don't, I try not to be a knee jerk reactionary whenever I hear someone doesn't like something. But if I start hearing the same thing coming through multiple times from multiple different sources, I think you have to pay attention to it. So, um, yeah, we decided, you know, that's, that's the shape of the meta now. Um, so eventually we put that version out. I think this was in. 2020, this is when we actually started putting it out to real players. So we, we put it out to some, you know, a few thousand players and some in some test markets just to see how things were. And basically the bottom line was our numbers were okay. Like they <laughs> it was never a straight up disaster. But uh, also there was this feeling that it hadn't really hit our internal quality bar or our ambition level. It hadn't really been met yet. Like we were kind of, we were slightly disappointed, you know. So then what began was a sort of a period of really trying to trying to find out what the issues were um, and, and how they could be improved. Um, we had some wins, some big wins. Um, I would say the majority of like the A-B tests and stuff that we did sort of ended up being slightly disappointing. Like, you know, that classic thing that I've heard a million times other designers say where you do an A-B test and you, and you can't wait to see what the results are and there's this negligible difference. And you're like, in your head, it was this huge change that you made. But in reality, I guess not, you know. Nothing um, really happens. Times. Um, How did you guys identify like where your problems were? You know, I, I know some teams are more on the like, okay, we're going to do a lot of surveys and get qualitative. Some teams are like never touching surveys, doing all, you know, data analysis. Some teams are a little bit more in the middle. Like, do you have a sweet spot for like how to figure out like what is actually the problem in this game? Because I think the first thing is you got to find the problem and then you can come up with the ideas of how to solve it and do those tests on the problems. Yeah. Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, I don't think anyone, I don't think there's any one silver bullet for this. And I think, I think this is the art of making games, really. Uh, I think this is what it comes down to. If it was easy, everyone would be sailing their solid gold yacht around, <laughs> you know, the south of France. Um, so what do we do? Uh, I, you know, the, fir the first step is always analyzing your funnel, right? You, you, you get your funnel and, you, and you, you have all your tracking events and you see where the sort of precipitous drops are. And you analyze that section of the game and you, and you say, 
you know, is there something that can be approved here? Often that's the onboarding, you know, for TUI. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. Um, I think again, because we had innovated in the core mechanic, what we found was players more or less understood how the core mechanic worked, but they didn't quite always necessarily get to the mastery phase, uh, which is something that we noticed with our, um, our level pass rates. So if we had specific levels that, um, required a mastery of a certain or an understanding of a certain rule in the game to pass. Um, those pass rates are always really low. Mm. Um, so we kind of identified that, you know, the tutorial wasn't quite doing its job. So that that was a long, long time spent just reiterating and coming up with new tutorials. I think, you know, Tristan was tearing his hair out by the end, the amount of time that he <laughs> read the tutorials. <laughs> Again, this is, this comes, you know, if you innovate on the core mechanics, this is the kind of thing that you can face, right? Because it's it's not a problem that's been solved by anyone else if it's a new mechanic. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we were definitely facing a lot of problems for the first time. And it, and it wasn't, we couldn't just look at what someone else was doing <laughs> to see how they'd solved it, <laughs> which makes things harder. Um, there was that aspect of things. We, we were never completely sure, in all honesty, whether it, there was a problem with the court or the meta. I think because the, the meta had become something a little bit more recognizable, I was less worried about that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's the argument that, well, maybe people are just bored of this kind of meta by now. I mean, it wasn't a mansion that you were, you were fixing up, but, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's adjacent to that kind of territory, right? Um, so my suspicion was we, we ended up adding sort of some new features to the game that were tr trying to um, improve on certain aspects of the retention maybe in a longer term retention aspect or things like that the appointment mechanics um like the tip jar thing that i designed which i think you mentioned on one of your um linkedin posts once oh yeah um so that was that was a you know was very inspired um still in 2020 by uh, clash royale and their chests system i don't know <laughs> I've seen any, you know, anything come along ever since that in terms of sessioning, which is as elegant as that. So I was, you know, I was like, well, what does that look like for casual? And I came up with this metaphor for the tip jar, which was this thing that you voluntarily put out. And then the bigger the jar was, the longer it took to fill up. So you were kind of designing your future session um, by, you know, which jar that you picked. Um, all of those things. We, you know, we kind of revert to those as playbook features, things that are kind of like supposed to be performance catalysts, right? That lay, lay on top of the mm -hmm. core game. And I think, A, you should never expect those to solve something that's underlying. Like if the engine isn't working, then you, you shouldn't just whack a turbocharger on top of it, right? You have to, you have to fix the underlying problems first. But also, you know, if, if those kind of features, like we put our first live op event in, and I think it was a pretty good event, but the um, it didn't have the uplift that we expected. And I think that's really a symptom of the fact that the, the core kind of wasn't doing its job. Um, as much as we loved it, I mean, we still love the game. And I think that was part of the problem is that we were really proud of what we had what we had made, um, but it just wasn't quite there. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly what you can share, but maybe like a, a blended T1 day 30, like, you know, what sort of indications did you have that the game, you know, just w wasn't there aside from, you know, maybe like people failing those mastery type levels? Yeah. So um, 
well, again, it wasn't awful. Our sort of our, our day 30 um, for the old version of the game was somewhere around sort of seven, eight percent, something like that. So it wasn't a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. You know, like that's that's okay. Um, it's not best in class, but it's not a disaster either. Um, but again, there was this feeling. I mean, I always had the feeling that it wasn't the product wasn't quite sitting right in my mind. Like, I didn't feel like it was great. I felt like it was good or okay. And there were some elements that I really liked and there were some I wish were better. Yep. And I think in various degrees, everyone felt like that a little bit. Um, so I think if you compare that to, you know, if you fast forward to now, if you compare that to what we're doing now, you know, it's more or less 20% um, our day 30 retention rate in, in T1 countries. Um, so I think that shows like the, the pivot was a good one um you know when you start seeing numbers like that but i think for me the, the biggest problem really was the um like the monetization because again we were we we're trying to monetize it like a traditional match three game um so i'm sure you're aware like the majority of in-app purchases in match threes is usually uh, what we call the egp the end game purchase so that's the plus five moves that you get at the end of the level right so that's yep <clears throat> That's the vast majority of the money that you make in any mastery. Um, and what we were finding was um, we did a, a sort of a level balancing analysis where we looked at, um, so we have this statistic called um, APS, uh, attempts per success. So that's basically, you know, how many times did it take a player to, um, you know, all of their fails plus the, the try that actually succeeded. Like that's what that number is. Yep. And then what we did was we looked at, um, sort of what proportion of those fails were a close fail. So you have to define for the game mode or the set of blockers or whatever it is, um, what a condition would be where it's like, you're almost there. So you, that has to be defined per game mode, right? So what you have to do is then create a ratio and you look at how many of those fails are a close fail. Um, and so we, we did a bunch of analysis like this and we were, you know, we tried making some levels harder and, and making some easier and, you know, we did, we did some extensive work on that and we did increase monetization, but not to the point where we needed it to be. So our, you know, our opt-out wasn't particularly strong. Um, so for me, that was another sign that, you know, there was something wrong with the core. Um, and I had some theories on what was wrong with it, but, you know, nothing that you could ever point at a graph and say, this tells us this is exactly what's wrong, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I think that the single greatest game for those like close fails is Royal Match. I don't know how they do it, but it's like every like nearly every single time I always end the level with like the huge bombs right beside each other. And it's like plus five moves. You can you can beat this level. You can blow up everything, get all that satisfaction. And it's just like sitting there. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the I, I remember playing Royal Match completely randomly when I was doing research um, when we were working on the old version of the game. I downloaded it and immediately I knew that I had something and it was, you know, the devil's really in the detail with this stuff sometimes. I think a lot of people just say, we'll just whack a match three in and then, do you know what I mean? There's, no, there's actually the art of proper level design and all of that stuff is often overlooked, I think. And I think that team has really proven that, you know, even in the reddest of oceans, um, <laughs> like if the right team can come along with the right execution, like they, there's nothing even particularly innovative in the product that you could point at and say that this is why they're doing so well. It's just really well made. Yeah. Um, it's very smooth. So anyways, uh, back to the game, 
you know, pre-pivot, like what were you, so you guys are all kind of feeling like something's not quite there, you know, what sort of conversations started to have happen like internally and, and like, when did you guys kind of all start to have this moment where, Hey, we need to make another pivot because seven, 8%, you know, D30, something just seems off. It's, it's, it's not right. Well, by this point, I think it was sort of, I think by the end of 2020, um, we'd we thought that we'd be globally launched by now, basically. Um, but you know, getting certain things right and getting you know sort of enough positive green flags in our KPIs to sort of posit, you know to do that, um, we hadn't got there yet. So we started seriously discussing. Um, you know, we really need to time box. You know, again, especially a startup, a game startup in our position, you, you don't have this infinitely sized war chest. So you you know you have to make this you have to be decisive. So um, I think what we decided was, um, and I think like Caro is really instrumental in, in this part of decision making, where it was basically we're gonna we're gonna globally launch something by September 2021, and whatever you know that's the time frame that we have now. Um, whatever we find out in that time, we will adjust our strategy accordingly. So. We had one last ditch attempt at putting out an update for the old version of the game that we hoped would make a big difference. And meanwhile, what we did was we examined what a plan B could be. And we had you know, some, some discussions, um, high level discussions about what that game could be. There was a few um, different options that we could have picked. And ultimately, I think we felt like merge games were the best opportunity for us going forward um so what we did was they basically freed me up from any responsibilities to the game and i and a developer an artist and our ux guy basically moved away and started a small internal kind of like a skunk works team and then we basically started figuring out a plan for a plan b um and we time boxed it and we were very rigorous with this time boxing i personally love time boxing things because it makes you it forces you to be decisive yeah, um, there's nothing more intimidating than a blank canvas. But when you can start putting some constraints in, um, I think you actually get faster progress. Um, so yeah, we decided we were going to make a uh, merge two game because it was not too dissimilar to what we already made. Um, we felt like we had a we loved our meta and we loved the con- you know the content that we build. Like it takes time to build good characters and story and oh yeah content. Um, so we one of the key design constraints really was. So, you know, whatever the new version of this game is, it has to work with the meta as it is pretty much as yep. much as possible. So that helped me as well because it forced me to, you know, uh, really consider what would work. Um, if, you know, if I'm surgically removing this old core and putting something new in, that's, that core loop has to keep working, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, um, as an aside, uh, Colin Foss from Skunkworks, the guys that did Merge Friends, he did a, a talk on Elite Game Developers about um, uh, how to build a merge game in eight weeks. Um, and that was that came out pretty much at the very beginning of uh, this process that I was going through. So it was very, very timely. Um, but he gave a great talk about some of the pros and cons of, you know, uh, different types of merge games. So. Um, yeah, we, we saw some opportunities in that space place where we thought we could bring our AAA casual puzzle um, 
sort of like chops our execution. And if we bring it to the space, like, you know, and we apply it, apply innovation in, in the right areas that maybe we'll find, you know, um, some, some good stuff to do. So yeah, that's what we did. And we, we started off and we set ourselves a goal, which was, um, you know, um, originally it was two days worth of content. And then very quickly, as we started building and playing this game, we did feel like immediately this is a huge improvement. Like to mm. me, it just felt right. Yeah. As soon as we started getting our hands on it, you know, and, and the team felt similarly. And meanwhile, the old update that we put out came out and it didn't meaningfully move the needle in any respects, unfortunately. So basically what we did was then we, we brought the rest of the team over. We expanded the goalposts a little bit and we said... <laughs> Actually, now what we want to do, we, we want a day 30 read as soon as possible. Um, let's stop worrying about what a day one is and let's start worrying about what long ter- longer term retention is. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that first test that came out was was really positive, uh, fortunately. Um, and it kind of put us on this trajectory where we were suddenly energized and we had the results. <laughs> like this team had worked so hard. Yeah. Like, we deserved a win. We had a win. And that was exactly what we needed at that moment, you know, it sort of boosted morale and, you know, um, yeah. So I'm really glad you got to keep the characters because that was probably the thing that I love the most about the game compared to like other match threes. It was like, there's, there's, there's like mystery, potentially murder. There's like romance and like all these things where I like, I'm just like left hanging. It's like, well, I want to keep playing this match three and I don't even like playing match three to like, you know, uncover the story and stuff. So, um, that was that was pretty awesome. That was actually that what you're talking about was one of the big uh, improvement points that we'd had in the previous version of the game. So when I initially built, like we initially built that version of the meta, we had the storyline in, but it was all a bit too cozy. And what we realized was like we want the coziness, but it needs intrigue and mystery and drama and stuff as well. So this idea of the cozy telenovela came about, which was you know. <laughs> You know, Caro watch, was watching a lot of these kind of like Netflix soap opera kind of programs. Yep. And she was like, let's bring some of that into it. And actually, um, that was a really good decision because I think, you know, it, it had a marked improvement in our early early retention. Now, now, when you were kind of doing this aside little skunk works type, um, you know, project, uh, was it strictly like you were just trying to get the core loop to work as quickly as possible? Or were you trying to like fix or solve any of the existing, um, let's say issues with like uh, merge mansion, which is kind of like the, the big de facto merge game that kind of came out there. Like, you know, I know when I was talking to uh, voodoo, some of the things that uh, Nick was trying to solve was like, board space and general scalability, a weak link between the metagame and core, illogical merge change. Um, they tried to make it a little more casual UX, um, more of a specific theme, and then like a, a non-standard narrative were like some of the things that they tried to add in. But like, you know, were, were you just like trying to get something to work quickly or did you like, were there any problems that you tried to kind of like solve and, and orient in there as well? Um, both. <laughs> basically um so uh i mean for start like you know merge managers is a great game there's loads of great merge games that were feeding into what i you know i was playing everything i could get my hands on anyone in my position you know that's what you do right yep especially if it's a genre that you haven't worked in or made anything in before like you just have to do your research um so i was playing everything i could get my hands on and 
there was there was a couple of key areas that I identified in the genre, the subgenre in general, not in any specific game, but in, in the subgenre in, in general. I was sort of saying to myself, you know, um, yes, board space. When you have that restricted, you know, Emerge Dragons has this expanding island that you can always put things in. But when you know, when you have a a sort of like a seven by nine grid, um, how do you keep adding content over time into the core? And when there's, you know. There's, there's key design problems occur. Um, so um, there was definitely a few opportunities that I recognized. I think I think live ops in general was one where I just felt like if we can bring our sort of again our AAA casual chops to this and 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 really apply our kind of thinking to the live ops layer, I think we mm -hmm. can have something special. And maybe that's as much innovation as is needed. You know. But also, you know, what is it that's keeping the player around in the long term? So in a traditional match three game, you you regularly release new mechanics for the core, right? So you release new blockers and, and, and game modes and that kind of thing over time. Yep. What's the equivalent of that in a merge game? Because it's effectively a static space. So that's a problem that you need to solve, right? Because otherwise it's going to be a pretty, pretty static experience in the long term. Yep. So the, 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 there's some pretty obvious challenges there, and um, but you know I identified those quite early on, and you know also our thing is narrative, and like, I really wanted to make sure that you know the link between the core and the, and the meta and the narrative and everything was um, explored as fully as it could be whilst still moving fast. So I think we we struck the right balance there. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, so for folks that maybe haven't played your game what does live ops actually look like in it? You know, how, how did you come about deciding what to do there? And then what does that look like? And did you test that at all before, you know, going live? Did we test live ops before going live? Yeah. I mean, or globally launch, I guess, I guess, you know, what does live ops look like in your game and, and how did you kind of come to that approach? Uh, so live, we only have one that's live currently. Um, <laughs> one event that is. Uh, I mean, li live ops is an umbrella term, right? I think it becomes shorthand. For sure, sure, yeah. But really, it's everything, isn't it? It's like sales and you know, yeah. Um, any anything that's kind of relatively time limited as content, I suppose, could be considered as, as live ops. Um, well, we we made some pretty key hires. We hired a product manager pretty much just before we globally launched. Um, so he's been helping, definitely helping me with you know create the roadmap, the product. I sort of outlined a product vision is it's been kind of a crazy scramble because we we made this 30 day content build got amazing results and then pretty much since then it's been full steam ahead like like let's get this thing out um so i was suddenly in in a position where i had gone from we need to find something that fundamentally works to now i need a concrete strategy for how this thing is going to exist as a product for the next five years <laughs> Um, which is a kind of a different headspace. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's also kind of a privilege because <laughs> usually uh, you spend most of your time on step one. Um, so I presented a vision to the team sort of earlier this year, which was kind of like a holistic product vision, kind of how I see the future of the game shaping up. And all we're doing now is we're executing that against that, right? So we have a roadmap. We have these things planned out. We've debated what should come first and what should, can come later and all that kind of stuff. And now we're just going to be rolling these things out. So I guess keep your eyes peeled. I can't reveal too much <laughs> at this stage. Um, but, you know, I think as the new features get added and if you keep playing, then you'll begin to understand what it is we're trying to do. That's super exciting. That's great. 
Um, yeah, I think um, I did want to touch a little bit on, you know, monetization in, in like a merge game. Uh, so, you know, I, I've heard from some people, I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to name games, um, but like a lot of uh, these merge games are coming out and they're scaling quite effectively to like 200,000 daily active users. And then they're just kind of stalling out and not really seeing many able to go beyond that hump and also seeing kind of a lack of monetization um, once you get past that like initial hump in a lot of them at least. Um, and so kind of curious, you know, like the plus five, the psychology of that, especially when you tie that into like a live ops event, like you see in homescapes where it's like, you got to win, you know, 10 in a row and you got to use the plus five moves on like game number nine to versus restarting it all over again. Like it just adds a lot of like spending pressure for, you know, getting towards those big rewards and things like that. Um, you know, what does monetization look like, you know, within the context of kind of the, the new merge game and have you thought about, you know, long-term monetization and if you can't share stuff, you know, that's cool too, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are and what you guys have learned. Well, I mean, this is very topical. Uh, it's well, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, I can't say, <laughs> <laughs> because it's kind of our it's our long-term bet for you know the, the actual strategy that we're going to follow our long-term bet for that was one yeah. of the key things i identified early on was you know mm. I, i'm aware of this idea that um actually part of the vision presentation that i gave um was talking about this issue um and the comparison that i made was if you think about the um the inherent complexity of the game um <laughs> there's a kind of exponential complexity thing that happens with merge games compared to a match three. So um, the value proposition of five moves um, to someone in a match three game is the same at level 10 as it is at level 1000, effectively, right? That five extra move. So you can yeah. actually see that if you look at, I don't know, if you take Candy Crush for sake of example, right? And you look at the, the long-term monetization, um, you can see it's kind of flat, you know, like the, the, the overall revenue curves. I think merge games are more akin to a game like an RPG or like a build and battle game, which um, where there's like a power curve, right? Yep. Um, and you know the the long term um, problem with those games, like designish problem that they have to solve, is um, how can we keep releasing content if we have to keep making things more powerful, effectively? Um, <laughs> and also, if numbers are sort of exponentially increasing, mm -hmm. um, what's the value of a dollar, um, and what does it get you? How much progress? visible tangible progress does it give you as a, as a player and it, this, this you see this to a certain extent in merge games right so um you know a dollar can get you lots of satisfying progress early on and then as the amount of effort required to make bigger and bigger items increases the, the amount of visible progress that you make decreases so i think that's definitely something that we're thinking about all the time um yeah my theories about how we're gonna tackle that um but I, you know, I probably can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, one GDC, I was talking to a buddy of mine uh, from Big Fish Games who was quite the whale in uh, Clash of Clans. And he was like, yeah, early on, I was spending like $300 a week and just like crushing through that game. It was so much fun. And he's like, but I haven't spent in like two years now because, yeah. it, you know, $100 would buy me like a single Archer Tower upgrade. And it was like, mm -hmm. well, it used to be $100 would get me like all this stuff. And now it's like, well, what's the point? Um, 
So super interesting to think about. Um, I think the other interesting opportunity that I would see for a game kind of like yours is, you know, I've, I've seen uh, progression where like, you know, you had candy crush first and I, I know there's other ones first, but we're going to pretend candy crush came first. Um, and you know, what were the problems in candy crush? It's like, well, playing through these levels, you know, one after like, there's really no meaning to them. So like, why am I doing this? So for those people, now there's homescapes or gardenscapes. Why am I playing these levels? Well, so you can, you know, repair your garden or fix your home or whatnot. Uh, but then, you know, within that, it's like, well, where did I get this mansion from? Why am I like, what's this random garden? There's no context and stuff. And then, you know, came like Lily's garden where they added this kind of rich narrated level level on top of that and stuff like that. And so um, I'm particularly fascinated with the live ops events that like Lily's garden does. And now they've got the the penny and flow, uh, which is super interesting there too. Um, And so you've got these like layerings and like time limited events where the rich characters kind of come in um, and, you know, collection mechanics and and things like that, I think can be super cool there. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where you guys go from here. Yeah, thanks. Me too. <laughs> um, I, I hope we pull it off. I think we, you know, I feel really confident in the team. Um, you know, I think, I think the most important thing out of all of this that we've learned is really what you need is a team. Like great games are made by great teams, effectively, right? Which is a cliche, yeah. but it's also true. Um, and you know, you, and what a great team really is is uh, a team that can continually pick themselves up and dust themselves off uh, after disappointments. I think specifically, you know, it's easy to be cohesive as a unit when things are going well, um, which, you know, luckily we're experiencing a little bit of right now, which, but we've been sort of tempered by the fire of just continual, like, trying things and not getting them to work and, you know. Um, but we've kept going and, and you know, we've, every time we've gone back to the drawing board, it's been with the same amount of energy. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. That's awesome, man. Um, cool. Well, uh, are there any other, you know, topics or things that you had noted that you wanted to make sure that we cover today? I don't think so. I guess there's one thing. I mean... I think I think there's this idea with merge games, which we had to disabuse ourselves of pretty quickly, which was like any, any old person can slap together any old merge game and it will be like you'll get a great retention immediately. You know, I think kind of to what I was just talking about with the team and stuff like, uh, you know, the devil was really in the detail with regards to this stuff, um, kind of just like with the match three games. So there are lots of people who. I've worked in the industry and they still have it in the back of their mind they could probably pull off a candy crush anytime they wanted right like it's just e- it's easy right you just put the you know it's a simple game um actually it's not as simple as you think it is and actually there's a range of um benchmarks um that we've had from different platform reports and stuff like that over the you know over the last couple of years where there is a range of different kpis and and, and stuff and it is possible to make a benchmark and and, and not hit great retention straight away so um you know it's already a space that's getting redder you know the ocean's <laughs> getting redder, yeah, definitely um so yeah i guess that's the only other thing that i made a note of yeah um and i don't know if it's too soon to ask anything of this but you know there's all these earning calls where idfa is actually taking down uh some of the bigger companies out there um i'm curious you know has idfa had any sort of impact on you know, UA and targeting and stuff for casual merge players, or is it so broad or so new that 
we don't really know yet. Um, I, <laughs> I'm probably the wrong person to tell me. Our head of growth, Eugene, would have a good answer for this. Uh, <laughs> uh, almost certainly to a certain extent, uh, to what extent, I, I can't really go into detail on. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think it's... Uh, I think it's affecting everyone in some, in certain regards. Yeah. Cool. That's great. Well, you know, I do have uh, one final question for you because it is the mastering retention podcast, of course. And that is, you know, what's one tip or trick that you've learned over the years to, you know, increase player retention. Like how do you get people to stick around and play your game for longer? Yeah. Um, well, I knew this answer. I knew this question was coming. <laughs> I was thinking about what I was going to answer. And obviously you've had lots of great answers to this question already. So sort of treading new ground is a tough one as well. Um, I suppose my sort of, my pithy sort of smart ass answer would be just make sure the game always has something that the player wants, <laughs> um, which sounds, you know, kind of stupidly simple, but it, it really that's what it comes down to, right? Is um, How do you uh, know that they want something or what they want though? <laughs> that's the real question, right? Yeah, well, that is a good question, yeah. Uh, you know, but I think often in life, as well as in games um actually achieving goals is kind of an anti-climax and striving for things is what actually um sort of makes you more content um and i think that's true very true in games so i think really it's it's about um ensuring there's always something to aim for at least in theory um if it doesn't work out then obviously you need to go back to the drawing board and reassess <laughs> what that goal is um, but sort of like nested long-term goals. I think you talked about the Tower of Wants recently in one of your recent uh, interviews, that thing that Ethan Lever did um, for the uh, the GDC talk that he did. Yeah. Um, and that's the framework that I've used. And it's a good way of, of visualizing and what is it that the player is supposed to be caring about at least. Um, so what what is the Tower of Want for Love and Pies? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know how to answer that without sort of uh, <laughs> sharing your vision. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I, it's we have one. We'll we'll loop back in like two or three years, and you know we'll go through what's the Tower of Want and see if everyone can kind yeah. of outline it accordingly. Maybe we'll do an update when when it's when it's out there. Um, yeah, love it. Um, Cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. Um, I look forward to uh, doing a rewind episode once Love and Pies has just completely taken over the world, right? Um, be super, super exciting to see where you guys are going. Um, again, you know, if you guys haven't checked out the game, download it. It's uh, super fun, super interesting. Um, and Matt, appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.